I'm Will Murphy, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk with notable artists, scholars, and writers and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Jose Antonio Vargas. Vargas is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He's written for the Huffington Post, the Washington Post, and had articles featured in The New Yorker. He's the writer and co-director of Documented, a film we'll be talking about in the course of this hour, and a film that shares Vargas's personal history as an immigrant growing up in the United States without documents. This past July, Vargas was briefly detained at the border between Texas and Mexico when he was detained for not having the proper documentation as a U.S. citizen. Jose Antonio Vargas, thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start off, first of all, a lot is known about your life after 12, after 16, uh, <laughs> and uh, after about uh, 30. But let's talk a little bit about life growing up in the Philippines and the transition to California when your mother sent you there. No one has actually ever asked me that question before. So I I, I was born in uh, Manila, which is the largest city in the Philippines, but I grew up mostly in the provinces. Um, five hours south of Manila called Zambales. I just remember I grew up in a house that didn't have indoor plumbing. And I guess when I was growing up, I always thought it was amazing that I could just pee wherever I wanted to pee outside. <laughs> like you grow up and you go outside and you pee outside of the jackfruit tree and like the calamansi tree, which is like a lemon, like a lemon tree. And I guess my biggest memory was uh, beaches. You know, I mean, the, the Philippines is an archipelago, so it's like 7,107 islands, so it's water everywhere, o ocean, rivers, lakes. And um, that's probably my biggest memory of the Philippines was the water. Actually, mm. to this day, <laughs> I haven't been able to go. I have yet to set foot, like actually be in the ocean. Like I can't, it's like, I don't know. Like I was just in Hawaii recently and my my friends were shocked that I spent a week and a half in Honolulu and never made it to the beach. I guess I just, my biggest memory is the water and I just get so. A lot of emotional resonance. Yes, it's, it's a lot of that and a lot of just like separation from it. So I, I, I don't like thinking about that. So It's compartmentalized <laughs> yes, somewhere in I'm a safe place. Compartmentalize it in my head. But yeah, the water is like my biggest memory of the Philippines. When you moved to uh, California uh, at the age of 12, sent by your mother, as I uh, have read, yeah. uh, to be with your grandparents, what's the culture shock like? I mean, I guess for me, the the biggest shock was not like seeing people who didn't look like me. I mean, I've always thought that America was like Baywatch because, <laughs> you know, I learned about America by watching television in the Philippines and they would actually show American shows dubbed in Tagalog, but, you know, American shows. So Roseanne was a big hit when I was growing up. And that was for me, by the way, was I remember that show a lot because it was the first time I ever thought that Americans could be poor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Mm. I mean, it was a working class family. And I remember one episode in that show where the electricity, like they couldn't pay the bill. And so they didn't have light. There, there was no electricity during huh. the whole episode. And I just thought, I mean, that's where I come from. I'm right. like, whoa, there's no electricity in America. <laughs> I was just surprised <laughs> by that. So I learned about America by television in the Philippines. And so when I got here, I didn't know that there were 
Asian people, and I didn't know what Latino was. I never met a Mexican. I didn't know. Mm. And in California, where I'm from, I mean, you know, there's a huge Mexican population. So that's probably the biggest shock. And then the biggest shock was realizing was that I was neither white nor black. Because in this country, you know, we frame things from that prism, right? It's like you're, you're either white or you're black. Right. And if you're not, then, <laughs> like, where do you fit into Although that Although there's a different racial equation in states like California, exactly. Arizona, New Mexico, uh, Texas. Well, I didn't know that. I thought the whole world was California. <laughs> you know, um, I, I fell in love with New York when I was in eighth grade because I ended up seeing five. I saw, like, five films in a span of three months. Sidney Lumet's um, Dog Day Afternoon, Scorsese's um, Goodfellas, Woody Allen's Manhattan. And um, there was another one that I saw. Oh, Mike Nichols. It was a Mike Nichols film. I think it was Carmel Knowledge. It was also based in New York, I think. And I just couldn't understand. Oh, and Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. (laughs) Which is not California. It's in Brooklyn. It was based in Brooklyn. And after I saw those films, I'm like, I want to go live in New York. And New York seemed like a whole world away from California, but it wasn't, but but it seemed to me that it was. What was the draw in those films to take you to? to I just didn't understand how could five films based in the same city look and feel so different from each other. That's when I decided that I wanted to be a filmmaker. I was in eighth grade, eighth grade, ninth grade. Um, And then when I got to really, you know, I'm indebted to public libraries. Like, I don't know what it would have done without the Mountain View and the Los Altos Public Library. When I got to, when I got to, um, be introduced to Robert Altman, Mike Nichols. I mean, I watch every film they ever made. I was just fascinated by it. You have to to wonder for a moment, though, a kid from the Philippines coming here at age 12 yeah. saying, I want to be Mike Nichols. Your grandparents have got to think that's a little unusual. Oh, my God. I thought I was such a weird kid. And, you know, my grandparents were... They were, they were American citizens. They were U.S. They were naturalized American citizens. My grandfather was... Uh, security guard. My grandmother was a food server. and But they lived in America. They were American citizens, but they still acted like they were in the Philippines. You know, like they did not... I grew up in a very Filipino household where we watch Filipino news, like where we talk Tagalog, where we... You know, like it felt like I was in Manila. So it was such an interesting dynamic between my life home, where I spoke Tagalog and you know, lived a Filipino life. And then whenever I would step out of it, oh, I'm in America, you know, and I have to talk English and I have to like, and that's why I think movies was like my way of dealing with, my way of understanding America and trying to kind of find myself in it, you know? And it just had that power of trying to tell me what this country was about. Now, I want to also find out sort of how you get steered to journalism, but let's pause for a moment and talk about this uh episode in your life, a definitive moment when you're 16 and like most teenagers, you want to get a driver's license. What happens? (laughs) Yeah. So I, you know, I didn't tell my grandparents at all because it was in the afternoon and they were both, you know, working. Um, Although my grandfather usually worked midnight, you know, the grave, the graveyard shift. Um, So he was home, but I didn't tell him I was going to go to the um, DMV because I didn't think to tell him. So I just went by myself, and um, I, was, I, was, I remember I was listening to Alanis Morissette in my Walkman, <laughs> and, um, and I took my, all of my papers were on this manila envelope in my grandfather's filing cabinet. So without asking for permission, I just took them, and I rode my bike, and I went to the DMV, and I figured I'll get the permit, and I'll be done, right? So 
that's when I realized that the green card and the passport that my grandpa, my grandfather had given me were both fake was after that trip to the DMV. But I have to say, though, like when that woman at the DMV said that my green card was fake, my first instinct was that she was lying. Hmm. I was just like, she can't be. And, you know, growing up in California, I thought whenever I heard fake or quote unquote illegal, I always assumed Mexican. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, wait, I'm not Mexican. My name is Jose, but I'm not. I'm Filipino. You right. know, so that was my first kind of instinct. And then when I went home and my grandfather was home actually cleaning his car, that's when I confronted him. And that's when I found out that the green card, he said, yes, it's fake. And you're not supposed to show that to people. Had you been using it up to that point? No, I didn't for... even know. I mean, I just I just knew that it was there, but I didn't really, you know, you don't really, when you're a kid, you don't obsess over what's the social security card? Like, what's a passport? I didn't, right. I didn't know what that was. And right. I just knew that I was here. Mm-hmm. But after that, I mean, people don't understand that to be undocumented in this country means you're obsessed with papers. You're obsessed with pieces of documents. So after, ever since I was 16, I've been obsessed with papers. So does that change the way you think as you go to school the next day, as you're going through being processed? I mean, as you say, paper is a big So, you part know, this was, there was no Google. So you couldn't, like, Google, you know. I thought I was the only non-Mexican <laughs> person. <laughs> papers. And by the way, I mean, even that thought, you know, to automatically assume that illegal meant Mexican when I was a kid. And that's a very dangerous, pernicious thing to think, mm-hmm. right? But then that's what I was told to think. That's what the media said it was. Right. 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 So I just remember thinking I didn't tell anybody. I did not tell anybody. And that was probably between 16 to 18 or probably like the hardest years because I didn't tell anybody. I didn't know what to do. I found out. I just started researching and found out that I couldn't apply for financial aid. And I knew that I was going to need financial aid because my grandparents couldn't afford to pay for college. So when I found out that there was no financial aid, I just kind of gave up. I didn't do very well in school. I mean, I did well because thankfully, my the biggest gift was the next year when I was 17, my English teacher, Mrs. Dewar, said, <laughs> I asked too many annoying questions and I should do this <laughs> thing called journalism. I never even thought of the thing. You know, we didn't, there were no books in my house. We didn't really read. I don't come from a reading family. Hmm. That just wasn't our culture. So I never thought in a million years I would ever be a writer. But when Mrs. Dewar said journalism, and then when I realized that journalism meant to me, when I found out that it meant writing my name on a piece of paper and like physically my name on a piece of paper, I thought that it was like my way out. I thought it was like, okay, well, wait up. I'm in a piece. My name is on a piece of paper. You're documented. I'm here. Exactly. So that was the only reason why I became a journalist. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to direct films and theater. I wanted to be Mike Nichols. (laughs) So you'd been thinking film, but not journalism. No, not at all. Huh. So what's the course that brings you from your 16-year-old self or 17-year-old self in California to working for the Washington Post? So once I got started, again, like... I figured I could just write my way into America and my name would be on a piece of paper and I would be writing in English and I would be interviewing an American. So I thought I could just keep doing that. And then I remember actually, I physically went to the library. I I think it was one afternoon and I made a list. I made a list of what I thought success would be in journalism, right? So that meant, you know, 
winning some big prize or something. And I didn't know what that was. And I'm like, oh, there's this thing called the Pulitzer and whatever. <laughs> Writing for the New Yorker was a big part of that. Because when I went to the library, like the New Yorker magazine was like featured very prominently. It meant working for the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal because those were the three most quote-unquote prestigious papers. Being a political reporter, I had just seen Primary Colors, mm-hmm. you know, the movie on um, Joe Klein's book. Right. And political reporting is like a big deal, I guess. So I made a list of all these things. And I thought that to be successful in journalism, I needed to do all of them. And you've done pretty well so far. And then actually I got to the point when I was 29 when I looked at the list and I had done all of them. I'm intrigued by the the reference to politics because when I look at a lot of things that you've written, I mean – there's a wide range of of, yes. <laughs> of material. I mean, it's there's HIV. You're originally hired, as I recall, by the Washington Post in the style section of all things. Yes, of all things, uh, to um, be a to be a feature writer to cover the culture of video games. Right. For a year, all I did was play video games for one year. I hated it. <laughs> I hated it. <laughs> and yet, it ties in, doesn't it, a little bit to your uh, interest in being media savvy and tech savvy. Um, See, I didn't think I, I wasn't really. I guess if you're a journalist, you have to be interested. I don't think it was like a innate interest. It was just like, okay, that's the thing that I had to write about, so I have to be interested in it. I have it. to do video games this year, and then I, next week will be... Actually, I ended up writing about AIDS because I wanted to do something completely different from video games. And I thought, how how far can I go away from video games? Oh, HIV and AIDS. <laughs> so, one, so one day I'd be playing Grand Theft Auto, and the next day I'd be interviewing like HIV-infected prison inmates, uh, former you know incarcerated people. Wow. But it's still far away, it seems to me, from where you've ended up in terms of advocacy. Yes. Uh, journalism is a different kind of thing if you're trying to to play a beat or to cover some, yes. something like tech than to do the kind of advocacy work you're doing See, now. that's what I find so fascinating because I actually don't think what I'm doing is advocacy. I find that really interesting. Like, I mean, I, I understand it, of course. I understand it in the way that in journalism school we're thought to, you know, we're not supposed to be part of the story. Right. Right. We're supposed to get we're supposed to step away from it. Right. I, I remember when I was a kid, I would you know, when I w- would read The New Yorker and whenever I would see the word I, me and my, I'd be like, wait, wait a second. What just happened? Mm-hmm. Why are they using I, me and my like? And then I figured, OK, maybe they have to like, you know, they have to get to the point where they can actually do that. Right. They can earn to use those words. To me, there's nothing more dangerous in the English, English language than I, me or my. So I feel like. All I'm doing is telling a story that I am now a part of. And look, people call that advocacy or activism or whatever. But to me, I'm doing what I think is necessary and using every skill I have as a writer and as a filmmaker to contextualize and tell a story that I think is grossly untold. Is this the beat where you see yourself living for the foreseeable future, the whole question of identity, citizenship, documentation and defining America I, I mean in some ways I feel like my career actually started three years ago you know I feel like it just started three years ago because I can be fully myself and be honest and not be afraid to say the things that I've always wanted to say but felt like if I said it I might get in trouble <laughs> you know when I was a journalist when I was younger I can't believe I actually survived as a political reporter for two and a half years because I was just so afraid to say things that I thought I should say, but then if I said it, then they might find out that I'm not here legally, that I'm not even supposed to be here, and then they figured out that I was a fraud, and then they kicked me out. 
You're, you're, we're making some veiled references to uh, to your uh, New York Times magazine piece in yes. June of 2011. I can't you know, believe it's been three years. It's been amazing. What was the catalyst? You write a piece in which you announce to the world in one of the most public venues you possibly can the secret that you've been trying to hide for 10 years or so. What was the catalyst for you to do that? So I grew up kind of in the Jason Blair era. <laughs> and maybe you can provide so some backstory. So Jason Blair was a young reporter at the, at the New York Times. And if you're a person of color and you're a young journalist, everybody knew who Jason Blair was because we all looked up to him. Right. right? Like he to us was like, okay, that's how to make it as a person of color in newsrooms. Right. And unfortunately, he was found out to have been plagiarizing all over the New York Times. Right. And there was an investigation done, and then he was, you know, forced to quit, and it was a big black eye in the history of the New York Times and how they were able to, you know, how this was able to happen. So in my head, it was always someone was either going to find out or I was going to have to tell them. <laughs> so in my head, you know, all those years writing for the Washington Post, I was at the Post for five years, and those were the formative years of my career. Um, I am going to be forever indebted to the Washington Post for having hired a very inexperienced. I thought I was okay. I wasn't great, but they hired me. Thankfully, they saw the talent and, you know, they saw the ambition before they saw the talent. <laughs> they did. Actually, most of my adult life, I always felt like I was, my ambition had to always catch up. I was always too ambitious, but not talented enough because I was such in a hurry. Because, you know, I had the list, right? I had a list of all the things I had to do. So I was just in a hurry to check off those things in the list. So Why do you say you're not talented? I'm just curious. Oh, no, because, I mean, I just, you know, if you want to talk about talent, you know, read Catherine Boo. <laughs> you know, like, if you want to talk about talent, like, I, I wasn't a very good writer. Mm. I mean, I wasn't until maybe I was in my late 20s that I finally felt like I was actually a pretty uh, capable writer. So in my head, there was always a deadline about when I was going to, have to come out about this. It was either somebody outs me or I out myself. And that was always when I was 30 because that's when my driver's license that I wasn't supposed to get from the state of Oregon was going to expire. So it was either I leave the country, go to the Philippines where I haven't been since I was 12, see my mother, and then come out from the Philippines. So basically follow Mitt Romney's self-deportation policy. Right. Or stay here Learn how to be a public person while being a writer and a filmmaker and a journalist. So clearly, I you know I opted for the latter. With significant personal cost, I would think, and I want to get to that in the course yeah. of this hour. I'll remind our listeners that you're listening to Profiles on WFIU, and our guest is journalist and filmmaker Jose Antonio Vargas. We'll be back in just a moment.
You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Will Murphy. Our guest today is Jose Antonio Vargas, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He's written, among others, for the Huffington Post, the Washington Post, and the New Yorker. He's the uh, writer and co-director of the film Documented that we'll be talking about in the course of this uh, hour. And he's a guest of the IU uh, School of Journalism here at IU, and we're grateful to have him in the studio. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Now, we've been talking about sort of your your youth in California, your shift to the uh, Washington Post, uh, and that day in June of 2011 when you announced to the world uh, through a New Yorker uh, or New York Times magazine piece that you're uh, an undocumented uh, immigrant. What happens to your life when you make that announcement? Well, there's one thing that I'm good at. I think I'm a pretty good reporter. So I kind of reported it out. I spent five months talking to maybe at least 30 lawyers to figure out just how much trouble am I in. You know, I mean, again, like, I didn't really know. I knew that it was bad, but I didn't know what the legal consequences were or exactly what laws I had broken. Mm-hmm. Every time I check a box, every time I applied for a job and lied about my immigration status, every time, uh, you know, I claim to be a U.S. citizen and I'm not in a government form, what that meant. So pretty much every lawyer but one told me that this was a good idea. Everybody said, you can't do this. Hmm. Um, because once, because I told them that if I'm going to out myself, I have to admit to everything I had to do. So they didn't, you can't say in print that you had committed fraud. The moment you do that, a lawyer told me, I would be barred from any sort of relief that may be available to me. Hmm. But I made the choice to do it because if I'm going to do this and in such a public way, I have to be honest about what I had to do to get to this point. So I prepared myself for everything. I prepared to be deported. I prepared to be arrested. I prepared to be, you know, detained. I what I did not prepare for, honestly, was silence from the government. That I did not prepare for. I knew that it was like, going to be a thing where I have to go on like Fox and I have to do interviews and I have to like explain to people what happened. But what I did not expect was relative silence from the U.S. government. Um, I was basically kind of untouchable. That I did not because of your status as a journalist? I don't know. Because 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 maybe I didn't fit the scenario that they thought I was going to postpone. I don't know. I really don't know. But I was prepared for anything. And I just wasn't prepared for that kind of silence from the government. That's when people are like, why don't they deport you? Like, why are you flaunting your illegality? People say that. And I'm like, all I'm flaunting is the cracks in our system. That's all I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Right? I didn't, I mean, look, I had a career before all of this, and I intend to have a career during it and after it. You know, I just happen to be an undocumented person now who's also a writer and who's also a filmmaker. But as you say, so much of our lives are defined by paper and are are, uh, filling out the right form or the right line on the right form. So how have you lived those past uh, three years when you don't have any original attraction? By lying. Even now, you still have to make Oh, no, no, oh, no not no. now. I mean, actually, that's been the best part. That's why when I got arrested in Texas, you know, 
I was trying to board a plane. I was trying to board a domestic flight, which is what people do. <laughs> and the border patrol, that airport in Texas was the only airport in America that I've gone to where when boarding a domestic flight, the, US, the border patrol agent sits next to the TSA agent. Hmm. Yeah. Because wow. that's, I guess, what it is in Texas at the border. That's not the case in San Diego. That's not the case in Arizona. And so I was did not prepare myself for that. So when they looked at my passport, my Filipino passport, which is my only form of ID right now that I have, the Border Patrol agent was like, so are you here illegally? And in the past, I would have said, I would have lied. Right. You know, I would have said, no. <laughs> right. I said, yes. And the moment I said, yes, he handcuffs me wow. and puts me on detention. That's that's really that. So, what's going through your mind is that process is happening, that this is the government is finally responding. You know, honestly, I was kind of surprised how calm I was. I thought it was going to be, you know, this is my country. I, you know, I this is my home. This is where I grew up, and to think that I could be in handcuffs for trying to board a flight to go to L, you know, to go within the continental United States. I have to say that I was worried about my grandmother. That's probably the first person I thought about when they were putting and me in still handcuffs. In California? My grandmother's in California and you know this is she's seventy seven. I have put this woman through hell. I have put her through a tremendous amount of pressure. She doesn't really understand why I'm doing this. Like she understands it, but I think in her mind she would prefer that I self deport, that I just leave and go to the Philippines and bring her with me. <laughs> she wants to go back. No, she doesn't. But, but she she wants me to like you know I be see. safe. Right. Right. She, who wants to have her grandson going around the country at any point may get arrested? You know that. Right. right? The fear of that, uh, which is very real. So that I was really worried about her because I didn't anticipate that it would be breaking news. It might have been a slow news day because <laughs> I was detained for eight hours when I got out. Apparently, it was like all over the news, and I just did not anticipate that. I, I almost felt really embarrassed by it because undocumented people get arrested and detained every day. And yet some person, because he happens to be a journalist and he happens to be, you know, even this Pulitzer Prize thing, you know, I want a part of it. That's not – it's amazing to me that people – do people think I'm more worthy now of being protected because I am, quote, unquote, a Pulitzer Prize winning something? Well, the argument could be made uh, and is made with some frequency that if you're a, uh, an Einstein, if you're a yeah. miraculous figure, we will bend the rules for you in a way that we wouldn't for your average I don't want the rules to be Joe. mended for me. I'm in this exact same predicament as day laborers and farmers and, you know, contractors and janitors. I think this whole idea of people who are quote-unquote worthy by whose standards, right? I mean, I am I think I'm particularly sensitive to this because I grew up in a working class. You know, my grandparents didn't make more than $8 their whole lives. Hmm. You know, I would never want to think that I'm now more worthy than they are because, I, you know, I speak English the way that I do or I won some sort of a prize or do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, and I think we kind of create this narrative of, you know, the worthy ones and the unworthy ones, or the model immigrant, right? Right. I'm not a model anything. <laughs> well, someone would, would take issue with that. I'm, I'm sure. sure. Well, I'm, yes, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. And I would think that your grandmother 
even though you say you put her through hell, it's pretty proud of you that you're getting this attention. And uh, uh, as annoying as she may find it, there's a, a part of a grandmother's heart that's proud you've gotten uh, you know, some recognition. You know, I have to tell you, she hasn't... Yeah, she said it a couple... I mean, you know, I just... I hope that she is proud, and I hope that she understands that, you know, I feel like you find purpose when you find gratitude. And I had to get to the point in my life where I'm so thankful for what my mother did when I was 12, which is, you know, like the sacrifice of putting your son on a plane and saying, bye, I'll see you later. And later now it's meant 21 years. Let's pause there and really examine that. I mean, uh, as I've read through uh, your materials and, and looked over your life, one has to ask the question, is it worth it when one hasn't seen one, one's mother in more than 20 years? Is that personal sacrifice worth it? All the things you've gone through. Worth it for her or for me? Well, for both, I would say. I mean, uh, it, it, you've, you've clearly... Uh, brought the issue of uh, immigration, of citizenship, to a prominent place uh, in public discussion. Uh, and that's something to be proud of. But at, I would think, immense personal cost, unless you don't like your mother, which I get the impression you like your mother very much. I like her very much. So uh, with anyone, I would think there would be the impulse, to heck with this. I want to see my mom. I'm going back to Manila. Yes. And you know, sometimes I... You know, immigration reform just, you know, it's not happening. It's not going to be happening probably until the 2016 election is over. Either we have a President Rand Paul or a President Hillary Clinton. Who knows? I have to be honest with you. Like, I don't really know how long I can keep doing this. I I have kept this woman waiting for this long. And um, I have to, like, you know, people ask me all the time, like, what success is. Success to me is being able to go to bed peacefully like peacefully in a way that i can like be feel like at peace with who i am and where i am in terms of my my mother and my family and not causing them the kind of pain and stress that i've caused them so that's something that i just haven't been able to have but that's why this film is so important to me um so this film that i made documented actually it's available on itunes and netflix now I made it in honor of my mother and in honor of my grandparents. My production company is named after them. And what, give us a broad outline of the film. It's about you. But. So actually in the film, so I started filming three years ago. It's my second film. But I was supposed to do a traditional kind of issue documentary, kind of like waiting for Superman meets the Dream Act. I thought it was going to come out. I'm the director of the film. But then I introduced you to five other characters, five other Dream Act undocumented young people, right? I tell you their stories, and then we ended up being on the cover of Time Magazine. Film's done. <laughs> That's what the film was going to be in my head. Then I decided to do something that I did not really want to do, which is to document my mom. So one of my friends said, you can't make this film and not put your mom in it. So how do I direct a film and how do I direct my mom when I can't leave the country and she can't come here? So I sent a film crew to the Philippines to film her which was really a hard decision because can you imagine I'm calling her, I'm like, I'm setting a camera, mm -hmm. you don't know them, they're gonna ask you a bunch of uncomfortable questions, I don't really know what they're gonna ask you, I'm gonna tell them what to ask you but we don't know how it's gonna go, mm -hmm. be honest with them, and then I'm gonna look at it. <laughs> I can't right? imagine editing that. <laughs> no, and we had like 15 hours of it, 
of her looking straight to the camera, telling me things. I, when I left, I was 12. I didn't know my mother, right? In the same way that you don't really know your mother when you're 12. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what pain and struggle and, you know, that she was basically forced into a marriage that she didn't want to have, that she was... I didn't know any of these things. And then she's telling this to me on camera, and I have to edit it. Imagine that with your own parents. So it was just such a surreal experience. But once the footage came back from the Philippines, and I saw her on camera looking at me, talking to me, and telling me things that I didn't know, that's when it became really, you know, it was was apparent that she was the film. Mm -hmm. Right. So this film travels from... Me, and then I go to Alabama, I go to Iowa, I crash him at Romney Rally, I, which is a really interesting part of the film. And then it slowly moves into this personal, almost like memoir-like film. And, you know, again, as a, as a person who fears I, me, and my, putting your life, you know, on film was, for me, was, <laughs> I don't like the way I look, I don't like the way I am. I don't like so. Just to put myself on film was just like you're front and center. You're the exhibit. oh my god. It's it's probably the it's probably the most painful thing you could possibly ever do to me. Um, and then you and you know and then I have to deal with it and I have to edit it and I have to. How do you make it not self indulgent? How do you make it not this oozing narcissism? You know, like how do you do that? And then how, how did you do that? By hiring and befriending really fantastic filmmakers. I swear by editors. Print editors, film editors, like editors are to me are like, they should be given a pedestal. Like they're, <laughs> they protect you from yourself, right. you know, and I'm, I'm indebted to Sabrina Schmidt Gordon who edited the film, you know, because there were times when I would literally be like underneath the table because I'd be crying looking at my mom. Mm-hmm. They should be like, okay, come up. Okay. <laughs> you know, and she just handled it with such grace, you know, and such humanity. And what do you hope comes from this film? It's been really fascinating showing the film across the country in places where people like me are called illegal and people think I should be deported. I've deliberately shown it to conservative and Republican audiences because I think it's really, really important that documentaries and films preach beyond the choir and connect. It's been really gratifying. So what's the resolution for you? Let's, let's, let's posit that question that you uh, get asked <laughs> and for which you're at, the question you get asked is, uh, why don't you... Become, become legal. legal. And your response is often, I don't have that path. But to me, again, like, can you imagine all the ink, all the blather, all the noise that immigration gets in the news? The fact that people do not know, the fact that people do not know that there is no process, that there is no line. If that is not a failure of journalism in America, I don't know what is. There is a line for you, but it's, it's an incredibly difficult line where you have to go go back to, to the Philippines and then wait yeah. 10, 20, 30 years. But the fact that people don't understand, because to me, what's I knew that it was bad, the gap between the reality and the perception. I didn't know it was this bad. Like, I didn't I, I did not understand that people actually think that all I had to do was show up at an office, fill out a form, wait in line and I'm done. Right. Like most a driver's Ameri- license. Most Americans think that's how it works. They don't know that you, you know, they don't know they have to wait decades. If you're from India, it's a 20 year wait. And look, we can argue about is that fair, but give me a process. If you tell me that, you know, I should wait 13 years to be an American citizen, okay, is that fair to you? 
You know, and it, uh, and people ask me all the time, like, okay, we'll give you legalization, but not citizenship. Is that okay with you? And usually I'm like, is that okay with, with you? Right. You know, is that you, okay with you? Would you accept that? Would you accept that? And the answer, I'm sure, is no. I, look, haven't we tried second-class citizenship before? How well did that work out? <laughs> when we said that African-Americans were three-fifths of a man. Right. Right? right. I, I, I just... And people say that, you know, me flaunting my illegality and the fact that I I respect and love this country so much that I decided to do this and make myself subjected to it. All I'm doing is exposing the system for what it is. And I feel like it's in some ways it's the biggest reporting job I've ever had. So there's a mindset. That there's a mind. There's a, we are we are undergoing. I mean, this is where it gets really dangerous. Right. Right now in America, we are seeing the most dysfunctional Congress we've ever seen. We're seeing a media that is about conflict and tension and not resolution and going through a disruption. We're experiencing the most dramatic demographic shift this country has ever seen. All those three things are happening at once. You know, I mean, as you know, as Chinua Achebe would say, things fall apart. The central will not hold. Right. You know, and that's why I find our jobs as storytellers and journalists even more consequential than ever. But to me, it doesn't mean anything if we're not connecting. Communication can't be a means to an end. You know, like, you have to connect. It can't just be you tell the story and then it drops there and then nothing. You you put your name on a form and you were done. No. So an ongoing process. It's an ongoing process. I'll remind our listeners that we're talking with Jose Antonio Vargas, journalist and uh, filmmaker who's in Bloomington as a guest of the IU School of Journalism. I'm Will Murphy. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Will Murphy, and our guest is filmmaker and journalist Jose Antonio Vargas, who's in Bloomington uh, as a guest of the IU School of Journalism and has kindly given up his time uh, to talk with us today. Thank you very much and welcome. Thank you for having me. So one of the things you're doing uh, as you tour the country presenting your film documented is meeting with young people, talking about journalism, talking about technology, talking about immigration and identity. What kind of reaction are you getting from the students you meet with? I mean, I think, you know, this millennial generation is characterized and defined by the kind of disruption, <laughs> right? This is like the 9-11 generation whose lives have been appended, you know, appended and disrupted, right? And so I think they've been living through really seismic shifts. I mean, the fact that for this generation, LGBT rights is a given, no matter Republican or Democrat, for the most part, they agree that gay people should be treated with the same kind of respect and dignity as straight people. I feel like they've grown up with immigration, and that's why at Define American, like, they're one of our target audiences. You know, how do we make this notion of immigrants? And it's, you know, immigration reform seems like such a political 
you know, phrase, right? Like, how do we make welcoming immigrants to this country a norm, right? right? And yeah, legal immigration, illegal immigration, like how do we how do we better understand that and how do we humanize it? So that's why it's important, I think, to to really address them and engage them because they've been living with this issue. They've been living with this border since they were kids, right? They've heard in the news. We haven't passed... The last time we passed immigration reform in this country was 1986, almost 30 years ago. Was that the Simpson, Missouri? Actually, I just met with Al Simpson in Wyoming. Man, Smart what an guy. incredible human being. Oh, man, I spent like... One of the biggest thrill of my life was sitting next to him at lunch and just hearing him talk about politics. And it's curious to hear Al Simpson is not a guy who you leave a room saying, I wonder what he meant by that. He talks straight. <laughs> Blunt, frank. And very conservative. Sc- I have to tell you, he scared me because he said to me, OK, you may have to wait another 30 years for immigration reform to happen. Wow. That's what he said to me. And I was like, please, sir, don't tell me that. But the question, I mean, uh, I lived in Wyoming when he was uh, oh, really? the senator there. And uh, I admired his uh, effort to undertake, well, his effort to take uh, up what was a very difficult issue. Yes. And to many people in Wyoming, not an issue germane to Wyoming. Yes. Uh, again, as we've been talking about this hour, that immigration is an issue if you're a senator from Arizona, New Mexico, California, Texas. But Wyoming, why would you care about that? And he wrestled with it. And it's got to be frustrating for him, for you, for me, to see folks 30 years ago wrestle with this and think they came up with a solution. And 30 years later— They didn't. They didn't. Well, because there was, as you know, as he would argue, and he's right, there was no teeth in the legislation by the time it was passed, right? I mean, that's why, you know, we talk so much about undocumented people and undocumented workers. How about the employers, the people who have actually benefited— from the system being so dysfunctional, mm-hmm. which really gets me to this point. Sometimes I feel like maybe people want the system to be deliberately broken. <laughs> because so long as people are mowing your lawns and babysitting your kids and harvesting your crops, what do you care? Right? I mean, we have created in the system a system of, you know, a system where undocumented people help fuel the economy. Half of the agricultural workers in America are undocumented. So they are responsible for the food that we eat, and we don't want to give them rights. I want to make sure we we get clear definitions and challenge some assumptions. Among the uh, folks who are undocumented in this country, would you say it's fair that the majority of them are financially disadvantaged? That's a really good – I don't don't know if we even have numbers for that. I don't know – I mean clearly we're disadvantaged because – you know, for example, if you're an undocumented student in the state of Indiana, right, there's no DREAM Act in Indiana. So you would have to pay out-of-state tuition to pay for college even though you grew up in Indiana. So that puts you in a financial disadvantage, right? Um, not being able to actually be paid a fair wage. I think it's pretty clear given that a great majority of the undocumented population are working class people that there's that disadvantage. I don't know, though, how many people – are college educated, have been working in profession. I, I don't know that. I mean, I actually thought, frankly, when I outed myself that there would be a flood of people afterwards who are doctors, engineers, nurses. Mm-hmm. They'll be like, oh, yeah, me too, me too, me too. But Didn't for the happen. most part, I mean, I've actually heard from some people who are white collar workers, but who feels like they can't really out themselves because it's too dangerous because they have families. And so, I, again, we don't really know who the 11 million are. We have some numbers, but, you know, and mind you, like, look at Texas, look at California. Can you imagine the economies of Texas and California functioning? 
I think there was this, I learned that half of the construction workers in the state of Texas are undocumented. And wow. many of them suffer from, you know, wage theft, right? A lot of them get abused by their employers. Right. Um, so that's a daily reality. And that's a different kind of, I mean, that's a whole other question of labor exploitation. Exactly, exactly. During your, your visit here in Bloomington, uh, you're visiting with students, what's the conversation like about the whole whole future of journalism and uh, how it's I'm being really, really excited about like that topic. You know, we, we are living through the age of disruption. I would like to think that it's for, you know, that it's for, po- you know, that it's a positive kind of disruption. Um, that's what Facebook is. That's, that's what YouTube is. That's what Twitter is, right? You think of those as journalistic sources? Oh, absolutely. And if they don't think that they are, then they're not being forthright with us. You know, I actually think these platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Google, they are media platforms. And they need to help rethink what journalism looks like. I feel very strongly about that. Um, That's part of why I moved back to San Francisco in the Bay Area, you know, after – 10 years of living, living in the East Coast, like I wanted to move back to where I come from and to try to figure out how, how we can better engage with all these, you know, uh, technology companies. I mean, to me, technology is anthropology, right? That was how I built, you know, my technology section at the Huffington Post four years ago. Like how we use our tools kind of define our behavior and how we see ourselves. And as a journalist, I find these tools to be helpful in how we can reach people. I also find them to be kind of a shortcut, right? Like nothing will ever, I tell these to students all the time, nothing will ever replace one-on-one face-to-face communication with somebody, mm-hmm. right? Like you can't just like Facebook your way through reporting. You know, you have to actually <laughs> talk to people, right? So it's um, one avenue. It's one avenue, but it's a very important avenue. And I feel now if you're a journalist, you're learning how TV works, how radio works, how online works like I wish you know I wish I were I wish I were a journalism student now so I could like learn about all these things and then Hmm. decide for myself okay how do I tell that story you know is that story better told on print in print is that better told on video is that better told on radio like radio is the one that I'm most inexperienced about and what I find you know there's something about the human voice that is just so talking one-to-one yes that is so um, that's one thing that I don't have an experience on is radio that I would love to learn more about but if you listen to some folks, radio is kind of dying. Newspapers. Oh my kind god! Of dying. Are you kidding? NPR is to me is probably like in a better position than most news organizations. You know, you look at the NPR website, right? They do video, they do radio, they do they do text. Mm-hmm. Try the you know, look. I mean, look at the New York Times. You know, they still haven't figured out what the video strategy is. Like, I just feel like all of these things are now falling into this great hole that is the internet and that mm-hmm. is digital life, and I think that's exciting. Right. Um, and now the question is. What kind of journalists are we training? <laughs> right? Like, how do we make them more solution-oriented and less conflict-ridden? <laughs> right. That's an interesting question. I mean, someone like myself uh, grows up in the, in the era of the five W's and, you know, the yes, guy sitting behind course. the desk and there's a gatekeeper to the information and you can trust him because he's reliable. And now the information is coming out of Constantly. a huge tube from nine million different directions. Yes. So how do you how do you set up those standards that journalism should at least in theory have? Well, I mean, I, I mean, again, like this idea of what are the facts, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes we we even lose track of that because so much of political media is so about opinion and about you know commentating, and I feel like 
getting down to that basic of the what, where, how, you know, like those five W's that you said, right? <laughs> getting back to that, but at the same time, also focusing on the how and the why and like why things happen. I have to say that that's probably the most infuriating for me because I feel like you look at immigration, you look at the topic of immigration, given how much is written about it and how often we talk about it. The fact that people don't even know the basic facts to me is tells us a lot about the kind of media ecosystem that we have, right? Right. Immigration is Joe Arpaio in uh, Maricopa County forcing his inmates to wear pink Immigration is what Rand Paul thinks. Immigration is what Ted Cruz thinks. Immigration is about what the left and the right thinks. Immigration is, you know, good for Democrats, bad for Republicans. Immigration is about the border. Like those kind of things. And about people don't even know that a thousand people get deported every day. People don't know that every day in this country there's a 36,000 bed quota that immigration must fill every day in the detention centers across the country. It's a quota. People don't know that. That's stunning. So who's paying for that? Oh, taxpayers. Oh, okay. (laughs) Right. I mean, you would think that the kind of basic follow the money trail, the detention industrial complex in this country is one of the great untold stories. I mean, somebody's going to win a Pulitzer for it. Somebody, please write it up. How we have institutionalized detaining and criminalizing immigrants. That's that's kind of been- It's a profit center. It's a profit center. Who's profiting from that? Do you feel like your career is now irrevocably linked to the question of or questions surrounding immigration? That will be your issue here oh, going I forward. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, look, I mean, I, I was always a generalist. <laughs> like when you see my work before this, you know, I wrote about a lot of things. I mean, I'm like any other human being. I have, a, you know, a variety of interests. Right. All I know, though, is that. I have the privilege, and it is a privilege, of my work being accountable to this question of how do you define American. I feel like, you know, I've always wanted to produce plays. I've always wanted to, like, do more films and do some television, like, writing and some work. I feel like I'm going to get to answer that question. And in this country, you cannot change the politics of the issue unless you change the culture of the way you talk about an issue. Right? I mean, that's how we've gone through the LGBT rights. Right, the culture had to shift before the politics shifted. Right, Will and Grace, Ellen, Gay Straight Alliances, right. right, families coming out has to be on your TV. All of that had to happen first before the politics a bit followed. On immigration, the politics has been way ahead, and the that's culture has always fallen behind. So that's why, in some ways, I think our work at Define American is even more important than before. You know, insisting on really questioning the language that we use, insisting in how we culturalize and contextualize this issue. How does the, uh, I've been to the, the website to yeah. find American. What's the thinking there? I, I go and I see these stories. Yeah. Uh, do you step in front of them at all? Do you just let people tell their stories? What's the that, intention? And I think for us, I mean, again, like I feel like we're filling the void of there's so much politics and policy and people don't understand the actual human stories. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, for example, the, the the amount of debate and conversation that the German woman, Michaela Graham, has started online has been fascinating to me. That, right? Um, next week, we're going to feature a story of a guy from Senegal, um, mm-hmm. a son of diplomats who's undocumented and has been here for 20 years. You know, like, that's an interesting story that we never hear about undocumented Caribbeans and Africans. And that's... That's a reality. I'm curious. Somebody like yourself has a lot of prominence Ugh. and a lot of political ammunition because of that prominence. 
But someone like the lady from Germany, yeah. that was very bold of her to make that presence uh, and her identity Absolutely. and her history known on the web. Has she uh, suffered repercussions? I don't, not yet. And by the way, I make it very clear. I've come out of two closets in my life. And I, <laughs> the gay one when I was in high school and now the undocumented one. I don't force anybody out of a closet. Mm-hmm. Like you do it when it's right for you. Right. Right. So, and I'm very honest with people about, okay, like if you do this, there are actually, there are actual repercussions, right? And right. like, for example, one of the people that joined our campaign is a guy named Felipe Diosdado, 37, been here for more than 15 years, two American citizen kids. He outed himself with us at Divide American, and so he lost his job, and now ICE may, de- may detain him. So I talked to his kid, Isaac, who's 12, on the phone, and apparently the kids, two boys, whenever they hear the doorbell ring, they think it's ICE and immigration getting their dad. So I gave them my phone number. I said, you know, the moment they get there, if anything ever happens, I will be there. Like, your dad is not going right. to get deported. Like, I will be there myself. That's a strong promise to offer. <laughs> but I mean it. Yeah. Like, if they're going to deport Felipe, <laughs> they might as well deport me first. Like, they're not going to do that. I feel a certain kind of responsibility when people at you know at Define American share their stories with right. us. And at the same time, I feel like this is a time that we really need to be challenging this detention deportation system. I still cannot believe that the first minority president in America is going to be responsible for deporting more minorities and immigrants in the history of this country. Can you explain that process? Does it make sense at any level to you that – his deportation know. levels uh, So we're are... talking about two, million, about 2 million deportations in five years. Right. I don't really think the president can, be able to, can, can ever be able to fully explain it. I think we're so close to it right now that we don't even kind of see it for what it is. But I think when the history and the legacy of the Obama administration um, is written, I think this is going to be one of the issues that he can't fully explain. Going ahead, what's your next project? So as I said, you know, I mean, again, I feel like doing all of this has allowed me to be closer to myself, so doing more films. So um, I'm working on a film project now on whiteness in post-Obama America, a film project on what it means to be young and white in a country that's getting less and less white. And the question of what is white? You know, as an immigrant in this country, I always get asked where I'm from. I think turning the tables around and asking white people where they're from is important. You know, white is not a country. <laughs> Where are you from? Are you from are your parents? Are your grandparents from Germany? How right. did they get here? Right. What was the system? What papers did they have? Did they just show up? How did that work? You know, like, I think that's an important question to ask. And until we can talk to white America and black America about immigration, then I don't think we're doing our job. Wow. That's a massive topic. I mean, where do you? I can't wait. Get to- <laughs> We you get a toehold on that issue to um, ask somebody what white is is a different question radically than it was even 10, 15 years ago. And I think it's the, I, and I think it is the question. I think it's the unexamined question. As as a person who's gay and documented, who's Filipino in this country, I've always been othered. I've always been the other, right? But none of the white American is be is going to be the other, right? There are cities in America where white people are the minority. Right. How does that feel? Yeah. <laughs> Growing up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I have some sense of that uh, from 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah, New Mexico is, you know, as you know, 40%. Right. 41% of New Mexico is Hispanic. Yep. This whole story begins in the early 90s when your mom has this notion of a better life for you in America and ships you uh, to California. 
do you have it in your mind that there'll be a time when you can go back to the Philippines and <laughs> say hello to her on your your what is literally your home soil? I imagine that in my head. I actually imagine the scenario in my head. And what I imagine is a very quiet moment. Like there would be no cameras. It would not be public. I would just see this woman. I would hug this woman. I would thank this woman and I would call her my mother. That's what I imagine it to be. And then I can't wait to see, you know, Paris and like London and Johannesburg and Rio. And I've seen, I've been to 44 of the 50 American states. Um, <laughs> Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm here anyway, so why not just make the most of it and see everything? Because um, <laughs> I'm not, a, you know, I can't wait to like see the world. I imagine what's going to happen to me when the whole world is available. <laughs> and you think that will happen? Maybe we'll do a define African movement. <laughs> define British. Does it really mean Downton Abbey? <laughs> we just had that conversation to some degree. Define Scotland. So Define Scotland. Yeah. And that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, I, I can't wait to do that. And that's why I guess, you know, for people who are listening, I hope that if you're an American citizen, if you have the privilege of being born in this country, because it is a privilege, I hope that you don't take it for granted. You hear a lot about, oh, the republic is falling. America is in decline. If you want to talk about America, go talk to an immigrant. (laughs) I think they remind you the promise of America, the possibility of America, and the fact that America has always been a fight. It's not something that just falls in your lap. And and despite your travails and challenges, you remain a staunch advocate of America (laughs) as a place to be. I am an American. I'm just waiting for my own country to recognize it. On that note, thank you, Jose Antonio Vargas, for spending some time with us uh, today. Thank you so much for having me. Our guest has been journalist and filmmaker Jose Antonio Vargas. I'm Will Murphy. This has been Profiles. Thanks for joining us. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.